Well, good evening. I'm going to... There we go. Uh, I think this is usually the part where the fill-in teacher says something along the lines of, well, you can tell that I'm not the usual teacher, uh, but I'm filling in for him tonight. I think uh, we're all probably smart enough to make that observation for ourselves. Um, but I'm going to be filled in for David tonight, and uh, I'm going to be uh, given a, taking a crack at the book of 1 Thessalonians. The section I was given to cover was chapter 5 and verse 12 to the end of the book being chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. Um, I'm also going to forego the usual open-ended question about what it is that y'all have learned so far, what you, what you, what, what you know about this book so far. Uh, we'll just briefly work our way up to our text, and then we'll get right into it. Not uh, going to take too much time on that because we have a lot to cover in just these 16 verses, and uh, I'll just flash this up on the screen. And uh, this is not something that I came up with. It's something I found online. I thought it was pretty good and pretty concise. Uh, so we'll just look at these five things real quick and then get into chapter five. Of course, we know that whenever we open this book that we are looking at, at a very intimate and a very personal letter that uh, Paul is writing here. I would say that this is probably the most uh, personal piece of writing that we have from the Apostle Paul, uh, perhaps outside of the book of Philemon. And the only reason that that might be true is because the book of uh, Philemon is literally a, a personal letter that Paul is writing to one other individual. I'm not sure that he ever uh, knew that it would be preserved for all of us to read eventually. But 1 Thessalonians is very intimate. It's very uh, personal. That's why we have in chapters 1 and 2 that the Thessalonians were a church who displayed faith, love, and hope in Christ. They were an example to all in Macedonia and Achaia. And then from chapter 3, you saw that Paul has a great desire to come to them and sends Timothy, who delivers a comforting report. And from chapter 4, we still see Paul speaking very personally to them, but, but at that point, he, he kind of gets into a bit more doctrinal things, things about the will of God for them and, and, and their sanctification. So Paul encourages the Thessalonians to please God and tells that their sanctification is God's will for them. Continuing on in chapter 4, is what I think is perhaps the chief reason for Paul initially picking up the pen to, to write to them. They were troubled in their hearts. What, what was it that was troubling them? Things pertaining to the second coming of Jesus. They were, uh, they were concerned about those folks that they knew, those people that they loved who had already passed on, what's going on to happen to them. So to ease their mind, uh, Paul reveals to the Thessalonians that Christ is coming again and that they will be with them just as we will uh, be as well. And then finally in chapter 5, Paul reminds them of their identity as children of light and of the day. He calls them to wait expectantly for Jesus' coming. All right, so now that we've very, in, in bullet point fashion, uh, moved our way uh, up to our text, go ahead and if you hadn't already, go to chapter 5 and uh, verse 12. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and read all of verse 12 through the end of the book, and then we'll uh, dig as deep as we can uh, after that. Beginning in verse 12, he says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. 
rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ he who calls you is faithful who also will do it brethren pray for us greet all the brethren with a holy kiss i charge you by the lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you amen all right uh, now, from those verses, from that initial reading, do, do we have any initial reactions? Is there anything that seems to, to jump off the page to you? Anything that sticks out to you in particular? All right, so that first one, give, giving leaders their due, those who need some recognition. All right, what else? Yes, um, verbs that uh, I've heard described as petition verbs before. Um, so I, I didn't notice, uh, yeah, charge, charge in, in New King James. That's a, that's a strong one as well in verse 27. So yeah, some, some very strong urging, exhorting that Paul is doing here. What about the, uh, how do I put this? The, the way that he is just listing all these things out one by one. Um, You'll notice all these various uh, commands that, that Paul is laying out here. A lot of direct commands that he kind of just seems to kind of throw at us. So are, are these just random uh, commands that he's just kind of throwing here at, at, in, at the end? I would say sort of. Um, but I think he does tell us in this section what the goal of all these things are. Did, did anyone see what Paul might have been saying is the goal of doing all these things, if that makes sense? Yeah, sanctification. I thought the same thing. From verse 23, he says, now, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it might be that these are all steps that he is laying out specifically to accomplish our sanctification. Remember what he explicitly said was the will of God back in chapter 4 and verse 3. Anyone, anyone remember what he said there? What was the will of God? Be holy. Same thing. Your, your, your sanctification. Uh, sanctification being the process of being made holy or separate. It's God making us different from the rest of the world. Are these things that, that Paul lays out here, are these things that the world commonly practices? I would say absolutely not. From verse 14, do you see the world outside of Christ comforting the unruly and upholding the weak? I sure don't. From verse 16, do you see the world outside of Christ rejoicing or being joyful? I sure don't. I see a world full of misery and hopelessness. Do they put all things to the test and only hold fast to what is good? Absolutely not. So by doing these things, we are making our sanctification sure. Or maybe it is just a bunch of random commands, exhortations. I don't think so, but... Uh, if you want to think that, that's okay too. 
Uh, by my account, there are 13 different exhortations for sanctification. And notice the verbs, as John uh, kind of pointed out already. The verbs used indicating a, a direct command. For some of these, there are multiple verbs in each of these, but uh, they're, they're uh, grouped together as 13 individual commands. He says, uh, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sakes. Number two, we exhort you, brethren... Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. And now when you see those phrases like, we exhort you, brethren, that verb exhort, again, what, uh, going along with the, what, what John said a minute ago, is what you could call a uh, petition verb. You see it in other places in like Romans 12 and verse 1 where Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, do you present yourselves a, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Or whenever he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. The, the New Testament writers, they, they didn't bold and they didn't underline their words when they wanted to emphasize certain things, so instead they would use these petition verbs like beseech, exhort, or urge to get our attention. So when he's... When we have something like we have in verse 14, he, he wants us to pay attention. He goes on, number three, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Uh, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God uh, in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Then you have... Uh, again, verses 23 and 24. These other things are our direct commands, uh, something that they were to do. What you have in 23 and 24, however, is, is passive. This is something that is being done to them. God is the one who sanctifies, not them. God is the one who sanctifies us, not, not, not ourselves. But um, this could only happen once they did these various things. And notice... Your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our whole spirit, soul, and body. There's probably some discussion to be had over what the difference between the spirit and the soul are. Um, some suggest that the spirit is the, the, the life that was breathed into our bodies. Soul is that eternal part of us that goes to one of two eternal destinations but anyways, after you, after you take one's soul, spirit, and body away, what are you left with? Yeah, no, nothing. Nothing. Uh, so what's he saying here? May God sanctify all of you. May uh, God sanctify the whole person. May God wholly or totally make you holy. He goes on to his brethren, pray for us. Number 12 and 13, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, and I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. So there you have it, uh, 13 various commandments, 13 exhortations for there and by implication our sanctification. Um, now let's do as much justice to these things as we have time to have. Um, I was going to say something along the lines of I don't have the uh, knowledge or experience that, that David has to, to draw from. Um, and I've also not, never conducted a class that's a whole hour long, uh, so we might get out here a tad early, but I guess we'll see. I was going to tout on him, not thinking that he would be in here, but I see him sitting in the pews right now. 
Um, but, uh, you know, even with the whole hour that we have, even if we had more time, we wouldn't be able to adequately cover everything in 5, 12 through 28. And, of course, feel free to uh, jump in at any time that you'd like as well. All right, so going backwards, look again at verses 12 and 13. He again says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Uh, Now, I'll tell you, whenever I read these verses, what I immediately thought of was the fact that this is a congregation that is well aware of what, what these verses say. I think it does a good job of recognizing those who uh, labor among us and uh, esteem uh, each other very highly in love. For instance, what was put on display this past Wednesday where our elders uh, recognize Wayne and his work and, and for Focal Point, all the work that he's done over the years. That is recognizing those who labor among us. But, but who is the other group that we ought to recognize? Paul says, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Who's that? Yeah, elders. So um, I would have to think he's talking about, about uh, elders there. So we have elders who are willing to recognize those who, are willing, who need to be recognized, but we also have to do our part in esteeming them in their work as well. But with all this recognition and all of this esteeming, what is the potential danger? Distraction from Christ, okay, putting too much emphasis on uh, self and on a Christ. What would be another word for that? All right, glorifying God instead of self. The potential danger is, uh, is pride. The, the danger of swinging, you know, too far to one side of the pendulum through our public recognition, through our uh, esteeming each other, being a stumbling block to someone by, by puffing them up too much. So what's, what is that going to take then? It's going to take some balance. Um, know when to give credit to others, but also have the wisdom to think about if giving, I'll say, certain personalities too much recognition might do more harm than, than good. You know, we've got both... Timothy's and Titus's in the church. Timothy was a timid guy. Titus seemed like he didn't have that problem, Uh, which is why Paul spent all that time building Timothy up. But with Titus and his three chapters, he almost get the feel that Paul said, Titus, you know what to do. Go out and do the work. We have both personalities in the church. We have the timid folks who like to work behind the scenes, but we also, and to put it as nicely as possible, we, we have the people who probably don't need to be told what a great job they're doing, um, all that often for their sakes. Notice also next verse 14. He says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. So he tells them and us to do four different things. And for Already having so much to cover in just these few verses, I'm not sure how much I appreciate him cramming four different thoughts into one verse. But uh, and, you know, we won't uh, go into looking too closely at each of these things. But, but just notice these four and the difficulty levels of, of, of each of them. First he says, warn those who are unruly or disorderly. Easy enough. I think uh, we, we generally are okay with telling folks... Um, 
where everyone but ourselves is missing the mark. Uh, next, he says, comfort the faint-hearted. Again, easy enough. Then he says, uphold the weak. This is consistent with, with other places in the writings of Paul, places like Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, where he deals with things like uh, Jewish Christians continuing to observe Jewish feasts and binding that on others, and also um, Gentile Christians struggling with their, their, their Jewish brethren eating meat offered to idols. And to the strong, he, he, he pretty much says, bear with the weak and their conscience. But the expectation for the weak was to not remain weak forever. Uh, so again, not the hardest thing to do to bear with those who are a bit weaker in the faith than us. Maybe for some it is, but at least uh, it doesn't seem to be to me. So these first three, I, I think, are generally pretty easy. It's just this last one that, that's the kicker. He says, be patient with all. Be patient with all. Anyone here ever run out of patience? Better question, does anyone here ever go a day without running, without running out of patience? I would be willing to bet that most of us in here probably might, or might, might be picturing a certain individual in our minds who we just have a tough, tough time not running out of patience with. Have you ever considered the possibility that perhaps an all-knowing and all-wise God might have put that person in your life in order to test your patience? Might make us look at that person a little differently if we keep that in mind. And, you know, you know, goodness, not only do we have to be patient with that difficult person, but here he says be patient with all. Not an easy thing to do, but that's what being sanctified or separate or different, that's what that looks like. By the way, with each of these things, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. You want a good exercise in studying your Bible that we don't have time to, to look into tonight? Go through and find every time that Jesus fills each of these roles. We're to do these things, yes, for our sanctification, but also because we want to look more like Jesus as well. Verse 15. He says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Speaking of Jesus, what was his prescription for a black eye? What, what did he say to do whenever you're struck on one cheek? Yeah, give him the other one. What did Moses say? What did the law say? He said, eye for an eye, tooth, tooth for a tooth. And that was kind of the norm until Jesus of Nazareth came on the scene saying, but I say to you to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. God is not a God of vigilante justice. He says to repay evil, not with evil, but with good. He also says that vengeance is his. So in other words, he says, when evil is done to you, return that evil with good, but don't worry because I will take care of it. Because I've, I've got it. Much of living the Christian life, much of living a sanctified life, is denying our natural inclinations. Denying what we naturally want to do uh, and opting to do it the right way. Opting to instead handle things the way that God has told us to. Someone smacks you in the face, what's your natural inclination? Repay evil with, with evil. But God says you use that situation to show that you are different. That you'll instead return evil with good. Verse 16, one of the uh, shortest verses in all the Bible. He says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. 
Speaking of things that are difficult for us, is it easy to always find joy in every circumstance? Again, denying our natural inclinations. It might be natural for certain circumstances, uh, circumstances to ruin us. To get so bogged down by something that uh, we give up. But we again uh, have here to rejoice always. Or also when James would open up his letter by saying in James chapter, uh, chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Or Paul's words about joy in the book of Philippians. Philippians 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then for em- emphasis sake, he says it again. Rejoice. But why? What, what, what reason do we have to rejoice always? Salvation? Salvation is good, yes. Uh, yeah, you're right. It doesn't matter what, uh, what, what the situation is. Um, having your heart in the right place, knowing that there's nothing that can change uh, what uh, God has done for us in, in salvation. To me, it boils down to the fact that despite what life throws at us, nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, can change the fact that we serve a risen Savior. That the man that we listen to and build our faith on, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is not dead and buried. And nothing that we face can change that fact. Yep. Um, we might think, you know, surely God doesn't expect me to, to rejoice. Surely he doesn't expect me to be joyful in the worst of the worst situations. Surely he doesn't, that doesn't apply to the most extreme of situations. But like you're saying, that, uh, that can speak the loudest. And, you know, that, that kind of thinking is understandable. But it's not true. You think about First uh, Peter 3 and verse 15 where Peter uh, says there, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So Peter said that, and think who he was saying that to. Who was Peter's audience in the book of 1 Peter? Suffering Christians, Christians who are uh, under intense and harsh persecution. Christians who lived with the constant fear of torture and death for their faith. Christians who had parents, siblings, spouses, children who were taken away from them. 
And if they were to remain joyful under those circumstances, again, uh, the worst of the worst, that surely would spark questions. That surely would uh, be a very powerful uh, picture for anyone that, that could see us. That way it would spark questions like, why can you re- remain joyful in this circumstances? Uh, this circumstance. What, what, what drives you? What, what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning knowing that this could be the last day that you're living before you face a, a pain and, and terrible death? So Peter says, be ready to give a defense for that hope. That hope that is within you. And that word hope, I believe, has a strong connection to the resurrection. To the resurrection of Jesus, giving us hope again because we serve a risen Savior. And the ultimate hope for us, our hope that that we will too be raised from the dead as he was. So, yes, life can really throw some curveballs our way, that's for sure. And uh, you can think back to the lowest of the low points in your life. We've all got them. And know that even at that time, that these words were just as true. Rejoice always. Because nothing can change the fact that our Lord was raised from the dead. And that as long as we're walking in the light as he is in the light, we have that same hope of being raised uh, ourselves to dwell with God for in eternity. Now, to verse 17, where he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, in, in regards to prayer... And uh, specifically what we heard, I hope you were here last Wednesday night. And I'll say that if you didn't come out of that lesson with a new perspective on prayer or a renewed appreciation for the power of prayer, I'm afraid to say you weren't listening or you weren't, you weren't paying attention. That was some, some very powerful stuff. You had Father... Son, Spirit, all doing their, their, their different jobs. Uh, the, the Father inclining his ear, uh, bowing down his ear to us, not only to, to, to hear us, but to uh, uh, listen to us. The Son going on our behalf, not only as the only mediator between God and man, but also uh, as intercessor going on our behalf, pleading on our behalf before his Father. The Spirit picking up where our Humanity fails us when we, in our imperfection, cannot express what is on our heart. So he makes groanings on our behalf that we can utter and brings those unspoken feelings before the Father. So that there's never a point where we cannot, we, we, we don't feel like we can't communicate with God anymore. Because even when we don't know exactly what to say, God is made to understand those unspoken feelings perfectly. All three working as one, but doing their different jobs. So it should be no surprise to us that Paul says something like, pray without ceasing. Obviously not meaning pray always and never stop praying for any moment, but rather keep a continuous, open dialogue with God. To never get to a point where where prayer is not a part of our lives, not not, not a part of our, our daily routines, Because scripture tells us that the power of prayer and the working that all three parts of the Godhead have in doing that. And so the question might be, what reason could you then have to neglect it? What good good reason is there not to use this uh, great gift? And there isn't a good reason to be found. Because even whenever you don't feel like talking to God, you know what you should probably do with that information? Tell him that. (laughs) Tell him that. 
Uh, tell them what you're really thinking. And as much as you can put in, in, into words, and if you can't, don't worry, he, he's got that too. Let him know what's on your mind as if he doesn't already know. I'm definitely not saying to be irreverent in prayer. Definitely not, not saying that. But to go along with some of the, the things that uh, Colton was saying this morning as well, don't get so caught up in using the correct terminologies and using all this flowery language that you, you forget that you're actually talking to someone who is real. Yes, you know, speak to him as being our Heavenly Father because he is, but also don't forget that he is also the greatest friend that anyone could, anyone could ever have. And friends don't usually tend to appreciate it whenever you go long periods without uh, talking to each other. Next, Paul has already told us a few places, some in this very book, what the will of God is. Again, chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. He tells us again what the will of God is in verse 18. He says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All right, very simple. The will of God is that in everything we give thanks. Tie this in with uh, what we just saw in verse 17. In our prayers to God, whenever we communicate him, don't forget to give thanks. And um, I think this is probably something that is harped on quite a bit. In fact, it was mentioned again this morning as well. Um, so I won't spend too much time on, on this thought. But when we pray, sometimes we have the, 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 the tendency to go before the throne of God and offer up a grocery list. All the things that we are, are asking him for. And oftentimes, that's the whole prayer. And uh, we, of course, know that's, that's a good thing to do. Paul, of course, said in Philippians 4 and verse 6, let your requests be made known to God. But does anyone remember in that very verse, Philippians 4 and verse 6, what he said right before letting your requests be made known to God? Yes. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. So yes, ask things of him. But don't forget to be thankful. Again, we could uh, run down all the things that, that, that we need from God, but it might, might be a good idea to devote a whole prayer for or thanking him for the things that we do have instead. Next in verse 19. He says, do not quench the, the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Now, if you were to have a young child give you a, a brief explanation for uh, what the things in verses 12 through 18 are, what they mean, chances are they could probably do a, a, a decent job of understanding what it means to give credit to others, to help the weak, to uh, never stop praying, and, and to, to be happy always. Verse 19 is something in this list of exhortations whose meaning may not be uh, immediately clear. Again, Paul says, do not quench the spirit. First off, anytime that word spirit is used in a verse, it, it takes a bit of discernment to see if the writer is talking about the Holy Spirit or, or the human spirit. We understand that the majority of the translators of our English Bibles, whenever they see a word that is associated with deity or they think is associated with deity, they will usually capitalize the first letter of that word. But uh, we also know that God didn't do that. The, writer, the original writers didn't do that. That was something that uh, they decided to do. Um, but with this case, though um, 
it takes a bit of thinking to, to, to try to understand what it means not to quench the spirit is. I would have no earthly idea what it would mean to not quench our individual spirits. So we'll go ahead with this being the Holy Spirit. Now, in figuring out with what that means, it would be much more difficult to come to a conclusion if we weren't given a clue very close to this verse. Anyone see anything else from the surrounding verses that give us a clue as to what it means to not quench the Spirit? Yes, absolutely. Right after in verse 20, he says, do not despise uh, prophecies. Um, So that's the giveaway of what Paul means whenever he says, do not quench the spirit. He's talking about divine uh, prophesying. He's talking about a, a miraculous gift. By the way, what does it mean to prophesy? To, to, to speak for God. Um, you know, we usually think of the, those Old Testament prophets and the things that they would say that Jesus or someone else would come along and, and fulfill. But uh, all it means to prophesy is, is to speak for God, to be a messenger for God. It is to have God's words in your mouth and uh, tell that message to, to others. We, of course, know that when this letter was written and sent out, that, that the church did not possess the completed word of God. They had um, to have what, what, what copies of, uh, of the New Testament that they could get their hands on. Um, but if that wasn't an option, they would have to rely on these miraculous gifts that they had. You read places like 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and you see that in the first century, worship assembly, there was a time devoted to a participant who was given the Holy Spirit in order for God to speak through them. And because they don't, They didn't have the word of God like we have now. God had to literally speak through one of them in order to get his message across. And while that might have been a sight to behold, um, we are blessed with the fact that we have it all laid out for us in black and white. We don't have to rely on this brother or that brother uh, to bring us a divine message uh, that that they were given. But instead, we can each study for ourselves what God has said whenever we we want. An ability that these first century brethren would have loved to have. Which is why it's a shame that many in the church leave the studying for the preacher and and what he studied. And that's it. While this is... You know, something that doesn't directly apply to the church today, uh, not, not quenching the spirit, is a great way for us to quench the spirit by neglecting, taking time to see what he, uh, what he has inspired to have men write down. I'm not going to claim ever to know everything about what it means to be filled by the spirit. I'm definitely not someone who likes to waste a whole lot of time discussing things that I think are probably more opinion-based than anything. But I do know that even if the Holy Spirit does work in other ways, that as Paul said in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So if we can't take time out of our schedules to see what the word says, we cannot let the Spirit work in our lives like he wants to. Notice again, he says not to quench the Spirit. What does it mean to quench something? Yeah, to to extinguish it. Literally, it means to cause fervent activity to cease. So, uh, while the Spirit wants to work in our lives, 
If we are ignoring those things that he has inspired uh, to be written, we are causing that activity to cease, for it to be uh, extinguished. Same goes for if we want to do anything to to deter the the preaching of the gospel. If we have a a man who does honest studying and is is excited to present a message from God's word to God's people, and we respond to that by complaining about his delivery or or something, uh, uh, something else along those lines, I'd say that's also a good way to quench the spirit uh, as well. Anything else along, along, along those lines? All right, so we have not quenching the spirit, not despising prophecies. And now in verse 21, he says, test all things, hold fast what is good. And I'm going to say that at least these three things, verses 19, 20, and 21, are all linked together. You don't quench the spirit, and you don't do that by uh, you do that by not uh, despising prophecies. And how is it that you test things? How are we to test things? Compare it to to, to the pattern. Uh, I think I heard the word of God uh, out there as well. Yeah, comparing it to to, to what we know. Um, you might have heard the word canon before. C A N O N. And uh, you might say that all the books of the New Testament all fit in as being canon. But what that word means is a general law, rule, principle, or criterion by which something is judged. Also heard it described as being a measuring stick before. You might use a ruler or a measuring tape to judge you know, how long something is, if it's going to fit into what you need it to fit into. The same applies with testing all things. Putting uh, things to the test has always been something that that, uh, God has encouraged. You think about the end of Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God uh, tells Israel how they ought to test folks who uh, come along and claim to be prophesying in the name of of the Lord. Anyone remember what, what the test was? Yeah, if he says something that will come to pass in the name of the Lord and it doesn't, He's feeding you hogwash. If uh, it does, then he's a genuine prophet. Not exactly the same thing, but they still use the word of the Lord to put that man to the test. You think about uh, how the Bereans responded to the preaching of Paul when it says in Acts 17 and verse 11 that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were uh, so, it's interesting to me that Thessalonica is specifically mentioned uh, in, in that verse as well. Or, it, it, it might be. <laughs> it might be. And I still need a little uh, admonition to uh, test things the, the right way. Or, think about when the, when the Apostle John uh, was writing his first epistle and you had these folks coming along, uh, coming along and teaching that Christ did not come in the flesh, where he would say in chapter 4 and verse 1 of 1 John, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But here again, Paul says, test all things. He's really telling us to put all things through a filtering process. Put all things through a filter, keep the good, and leave out those things that are, are, are bad. But again, how do you judge what is good and what is bad? I, I remember from the dialogues between Socrates and a man named uh, Euthyphro. Who, and Socrates in that posed this question, did God call a thing good because it's good 
Or is a thing good because God said it's good? In other words, are things intrinsically good or does God judge what is good? And I believe it's the latter. God, creator of all things, got to judge what is good and what is bad. He decided what was good and what was bad. And therefore, we look to him, we look to his word as to know what is good. How to test and see what's good, how to know what to hold fast to. On to verse 22. He says... Abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. He says abstain or literally distance yourself from every form of evil. I'll go ahead and assume that it was, uh, I guess, two weeks ago now that y'all would have covered the beginning portions of chapter 5. But look back at chapter 5, verses 4 and following. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that, we, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So, Paul makes this distinction. He says, there are those who are sons of light, or, or the day, and there are sons of darkness, or the night. Christians would be the sons of the day. So, uh, what Paul is saying here in verse 22 would be what? Act like it. You're sons of the day, so a- act like it. If you're going to be sons of the day, act like it. So hey, you don't do what those sons of darkness do, but you distance yourself from them and the evil things that they do. Does this mean that we then shelter ourselves off from the world? Does this mean that we pretend that, that people in the world don't I- I- exist? No. How are you going to... Uh, help those people come to know the truth if you don't associate yourself with anyone but Christians. It simply means you don't do the things that they do. You make a distinction between yourself and them. Paul again continues by perhaps laying out the point of all this in verses 23 and 24. Uh, Sanctification, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And then the the first of these last three exhortations is verse 25. He says, brethren, pray for us. Brethren, pray for us. All right? We we already saw prayer in verse 17. Here, Paul says, uh, pray for us. Who would the us be? Might have to think back a little bit for this one, but say again. Yeah, Paul and his companions, you look back at chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, uh, Timothy, and, and Silvanus, or, or Silas. Um, I personally take a lot of enjoyment out of not overcomplicating things. So we'll go with that being who, who the we is. So uh, some practical, practical application. Don't forget to pray for your preachers. Simple as that. Verse 20. Or G. Daniel in India. Or G. Daniel in India. Yes. Praying specifically by name. 
absolutely. Um, we heard, uh, like from last Wednesday, Wednesday night, that uh, Jesus goes and, and specifically prays for his, his by name, goes to his Father and intercedes for, for them by name. Probably be a good idea for us to do the same thing as well. Uh, verse 26, he says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Here is a concept that might make us in the 21st century cringe just a little bit. It seemed to be a common form of greeting back in these times to do a little less handshaking and a little bit more kissing. Okay, um, Yeah, it seems strange to us. But you know what? If one of these Thessalonian brethren were, were with us here today, they would probably think that we're weird for not, not doing it. Funny how culture works that way. Uh, if you want to take one thing away from this, I would say it's this. Be careful not to look through Scripture through 21st century American eyes. Um, this wasn't written for us. This wasn't written for our, our, our culture. So let's not impose our standards uh, of normal and abnormal on it. And then finally, he says in verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. It's kind of funny to me that Paul had to explicitly tell them to have this epistle be read uh, among the congregation. Some commentators have theorized that perhaps there was a split in, in the congregation and some wouldn't want the other people in the other group to re- read the letter. At the end of the day, that's all baseless speculation. I'm sure they would have done it uh, anyway, but he wanted to make sure that the message of this whole letter met the ears that he intended it to. To sort of uh, tie up the sum of the book in this verse, Paul wanted to make sure that they knew how much he loved and appreciated them and their great, great faith, chapters 1 and 2. He wanted to make sure that they understood just how relieved he was whenever Timothy returned to him with his report in chapter 3. He wanted to make sure that they knew God's will for them, namely their sanctification, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. He wanted to make sure that their, their minds were, were eased and that they knew that their fallen love, uh, loved ones in Christ hadn't perished but were awaiting to be raised from the dead, chapter 4, verses 12 through 18. He wanted to make sure that they knew their status, that they were children of light or the day and not the children of darkness, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And he wanted to make sure that they knew that, that these various means uh, of sanctification, what, 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 they are, what they are, the things that we have discussed uh, this evening. All right, so that's the book of First Thessalonians. Now we probably moved through these, these things a little, well, uh, a little quickly. Probably could have taken our time a bit more uh, through them. I've got uh, 552 right here. Any other questions, any other comments before we uh, close out? Um, so by quenching the Holy Spirit, we are denying at least a third uh, of those who are going on our behalf. Well, it's, it's the, 
with the nature of the Godhead as well, if you eliminate one, can you have the other two? <laughs> Probably not. I, I wouldn't think so. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So what we might want to do in the moment, and again, he says both for yourselves and for all, what we might want to do in the moment in would end up to be something that would be bad for everyone. But instead, thinking about what we're doing and uh, taking a step back and seeing what uh, God wants us to do uh, would be good for, for everyone. Absolutely. Consequences to our actions. Absolutely. Peace coming with uh, doing these uh, various exhortations. Yes, sir. Stepping on my toes a bit there, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe as well uh, a reminder, kind of halfway through, of of why it's it's important to be listening to these things because he's not using himself as an authority, but uh, but, but God also reminds you kind of uh, what. Uh, Peter would say in Acts chapter 5 to Ananias and Sapphira, you haven't lied to, to men, but, but, but to God. This only means anything because he's inspired to write these things and to not to quench the spirit. Sir.
which at the end of the day comes down to a, an attitude problem of thinking that we know better. But, yes, yes. Like, like children, you can be that way sometimes. So not stifling inspiration. What uh, translation is that? Okay, interesting, interesting. Thank you very much. Anything else this evening? Yes. Yes. Yep. You see joy in all sorts of situations where you wouldn't expect to find joy. Like being kind of worthy to suffer for the, for the gospel's sake. Singing in jail houses, things like that. I've absolutely got some great examples of that uh, elsewhere. Yes. An example uh, in the first 26 weeping of the brethren, the weeping of the epistles, the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. In Jamaica, over there, there's an evening assembly about the Lord Christ that happens. When you enter the building, when, you, when someone comes in, So not only not looking at scripture through 21st century American eyes, but also not looking at the whole world <laughs> through American eyes. Yes, yes. Yes. Culture is funny that way. That's right. That's right. Anything else? All right. Well, thank, you, thank you so much for your time this evening. I assume that uh, y'all will be picking up in Second Thessalonians next week. Thank you.